So we've been working through this series. We've called it Power from on High, Jesus Ascended. Um, If you've been able to keep up as we've been going along, that's great. But the essential element, if you haven't been able to keep up, is we've been dwelling on that final uh, critical part of the, if you like, the stepping stones of the story of Jesus. Uh, We have it uh, uh, kept for us in the Bible. And the final key stepping stone... Uh, that has already taken place. There's another one still to take place. But the stepping stone that has taken place already is that he has ascended to heaven. He has returned to heaven. Uh, Now, straight away, as soon as we use words like that, we're using words which every, pretty much every culture throughout history, throughout time, throughout the world, in different uh, parts of the world, Every people group, in one way or another, has latched on to that concept. The idea of, I'm going to put it in inverted commas for now, the idea of heaven. We can't get away from it, can we? We can't get away from that sense of something something more than just living our lives today. It's fascinating to see the way that has been worked out. We see it as we see the reality that modernity, if you like, that whole sweep of the seeming hope that science was going to answer everything, modernity has not washed away what science cannot explain. We think, or we hoped, as a human race at a certain point, in the last century, that the advances in science would finally kill the idea of God, kill the idea of heaven, kill the idea of anything more, it would be over and done with because finally we'd be able to answer everything. I find it absolutely fascinating that here we are in the 21st century in Western culture, which in lots of ways is actually more spiritual than it was in the last century. There are more people asking questions about spirituality. There are more people concerned about issues of who we are in terms of connections with the outside and beyond. Now, what we've decided we can do is we've decided that as human beings, what we're able to do, therefore, is we are able to construct what we mean by heaven. We're able to decide what we mean by our being as people. And so we've constructed lots and lots of different ideas of what it means outside of this life. Uh, Now, that is either a formal set of structures, so we can go through, interestingly, the history of something like astrology, the idea of the planets and systems giving some sense of, uh, of divine power in this world. We can go through that and we can go back 3,000 years BC and we can see the foundations of astrology. We can see that the Babylonian nation was the first to really grab a hold of the concepts of astrology, to bring them into some kind of system, and then to introduce alongside astrology divination, 
or the idea of introducing the divine, the God concept, into ideas of astrology. Fascinating. Here we are, 21st century, um, Great Britain, pretty much most popular radio uh, stations, pretty much most popular newspapers, have still our star signs. You can have them tweeted to you on a daily basis. You can follow your star signs on Facebook. You can do the whole nine yards. You can make sure that you keep up with your star signs. Isn't it interesting, though, that what we're, what we're actually saying is that somehow, some way, is there something more? Here's the issue that I want to suggest this afternoon. Is actually... The ascension of Jesus introduces to us and demands of us a definition in three ways. A definition of what heaven is, a definition of what human fulfillment looks like, and a definition of how we might attain that. I say that because it's fantastically important, because it inter- in fact it's probably one of the most important things that the Christian faith introduces. And it's the idea that we actually don't define what we mean by God, what we mean by heaven, what we mean by human fulfillment what we mean by how to attain it. We don't define that. It's not actually, if it's true, there's a logic to it as well, isn't there? If there is truth out there, then that truth might well have the right to define itself upon us. It reveals itself to us, introduces itself to us, that truth, And then in introducing itself to us, it trumps all of the other concepts, all of the other ideas that we might define for how it works. That's a colossal claim, isn't it? Massive. In fact, many would say that's really quite, um, that's an intolerant claim. You can't, that sounds incredibly intolerant. I, I just... I can understand why that sounds intolerant, except for this. (laughs) It makes exactly the same demands on the speaker, and it makes exactly the same demands on those who have that perspective as it does on everybody else. It doesn't raise the declaration or the person making the declaration above everybody else. It actually levels us all. That's one thing to think about. I'd love to have some conversation. We haven't got time this afternoon to talk about issues of tolerance. But if anybody has uh, some thoughts around that, then I'm more than happy to have a conversation with you. I want to look at this particular passage this afternoon and work out how does Jesus define the idea of heaven? How does he define the idea of fulfillment? And how does he define the idea of salvation? First thing that we see is that in this particular passage, it's all about ascension and, or ascending and descending. 
It's about ascending and descending. What we've said on a number of occasions right the way through this series is that we want to just kind of move away from the idea of heaven being up there somewhere beyond space and earth being down here. Um, The Bible writers used the language, used a way of describing it, ascending, descending, more to do with um, status rather than location, more to do with uh, value uh, rather than where it is. It's really important to just keep that in mind. We can see that when we see the way in which Jesus seamlessly enters at what we would probably now use an alternative word, which we might say something like dimension. It's a way of introducing the idea that heaven isn't out there, it's invisible. One of the uh, great sort of thinkers in this area was C.S. Lewis. Uh, He wrote great children's books. Uh, And one of the ways that he um, started to introduce these ideas to us was a wardrobe. A wardrobe with fur coats in it, which every now and then you fell through the back of the fur coats and entered into another world. It's the world of Narnia. It was a world which was existing alongside the world that was seen by everybody else. It was a kind of another dimension. You walked around the back of the wardrobe and it had wooden panels on the back. And yet for some who actually went through and, I guess, believed, there was another dimension. Jesus talks about those two in this passage. Look at verse 57. First thing he says, Jesus is the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. That's one of the things that he's saying. He's making a massive declaration. He's saying first off that there is something about human life which is rooted, which is connected to my coming and my coming from heaven, my descending from heaven, my place of superior glory, I've moved down to this world. Now, in reality, it's not a dropping from the sky, but it's a entering into what I think, again, C.S. Lewis described as the miry pool, the miry cesspool, where Jesus plunged into the water and swam to the bottom and entered into the filth of the reality of this world. Here's just a great description to see the transition that went on for the hope of Jesus to come into this world. So firstly, he says there that he descended. Then in verse 62, and we're going to have a look at how this works out in a few minutes, it says then, he then says... Uh, Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? So we've got those two ideas 
contained in this little section. We've got the idea of Jesus descending, and we've got the idea of Jesus ascending in this one section. What does he actually say, therefore? He's actually saying, just think about the words that he used and then connect it to what goes on later on. He says to these people around him, what would you say if you saw the Son of Man ascend into heaven? What would you say? What would you say if the person who you have spent time with, who you've ate and drank with, who you know as a living human being, if that person ascends into heaven? What would you say to that? That completely knocks aside every definition that we might like to make about what heaven is going to be. So, it would be actually, as I think Johnny Woodrow writes this really helpfully, he says, human flesh became a permanent fixture in heaven, a scandal to Greeks, and a permanent fixture for the Son of God, a scandal for Jews. Here's the thing. If you think, as was the case at that time, as Hellenistic Greek thinking was rife, The way for real understanding of heaven was actually getting free from this really frustrating physical dimension. Physicality. That's the problem. If we could get rid of our bodies and if we could enter into some kind of higher spirituality, then that would be the real answer. That would be what heaven is going to be like. It's going to be release from physicality. And Jesus says, for you who think that spirituality uh, and, and heaven, therefore, is going to be all about some higher spiritual plane, what do you say to the idea of me preparing you for the idea that heaven is going to be me physically ascending into it? What do you say to that? What do you say? What do we say today? We live in a generation where there has been a massive influence of Eastern mysticism, uh, New Age thinking as well, just just this mishmash of different things. We've got um, North American Indian influence, we've um, we've got Eastern mysticism, we've got the whole kind of resurrection of Druid thinking and all the rest of it. What is underlying most of that thinking is the idea that, uh, however you want to describe it, let's use it in its broadest terms, heaven, nirvana, whatever you want to describe it, that is going to be some sort of spiritual satisfaction. And Jesus says, let me just prepare you for the shock news that heaven is about physical Because I am entering into heaven in that physical form. Human flesh, a scandal to the Greeks. But it's another scandal 
to those, maybe, maybe even some who've got a really uh, kind of, you've been brought up in a Christian way of thinking maybe, and you've got an idea of the God of the Bible, and you've got an idea actually that in some sense humanity is going to be somehow permanently separated from God, and if we are in connected with God in some way, then in, in another way it'll be some sort of distant spirituality. And Jesus says, for us who think in that way, it's physical. I am the ascended human in human form, and I am the Son of God. God takes on human flesh and returns to heaven in human flesh. So that makes sense of what we read at the end of the Bible when it introduces us to the idea that God is no longer separated from us. Not because we've become spiritual, but because we've become resurrected which allows us to enter into our next phase. If Jesus redefines the idea of heaven, he also redefines the idea of human fulfillment. What does human fulfillment actually look like? What does it really mean to really be fulfilled in human terms? What's your idea? Maybe you can just spend just two seconds, just think, what what would it really mean for me? Would it really mean for me, human fulfillment, the idea that in 40, 50 years after I've left this earth, that my grandchildren are showing their grandchildren photos of me in a, actually they won't be showing photos in a photo album in 100 years, will they, in fairness. There'll probably be some sort of hologram floating around in front of them. Do you know that was your granddad? That, that one there, that floating just above the Apple Mac. <laughs> to this idea of floating around, this, this idea of I hope that in some way my heritage is that I will be meaningful to future generations. Is that what it's all about? Is it that I've had some impact, some heritage, so that somebody will look back and say, yeah, that person started that event and it's still earning X. All of those things are really great. I'm not saying they're not good things. It's great to have done things which have had lasting legacy. But is that real fulfillment? Is that what our destiny is? Actually, what Jesus introduces is this. The idea that for you and me, our long-term destiny, our connection, my personal connection with that idea of heaven, the idea of physicality, my personal connection with that idea of heaven is that there is the potential for me, likewise, to rise from the dead and take on, once again, human flesh. To live again. To live again. Why, do I, why does Jesus' ascension say that? 
Because that is what he did. Do you see the connection? He becomes, as Paul almost describes in Corinthians, he becomes the prototype, the one who goes before, or the first fruit of many. He becomes what will be. So Jesus is nailed to a cross, his blood flows to the extent where the blood loss and whatever other technicalities of how he dies on the cross, he literally, physically dies. He dies. His body is wrecked, so much so that he isn't identifiable. He is put into a tomb, and three days later he rises again, and is identifiable. So that those who knew him saw him and recognized him. They knew, so he's restored in some sense. We also know that he carries on bearing the marks of his death. I think there's other reasons why that is important to us. But he is restored physically. What does that say for you? What does it say for me? That my connection to that idea of heaven is that so that one day, when I die, I don't know. Here's the thing. I don't know when I die, how soon, if Jesus doesn't return before I die, I don't know how soon after my death Jesus is going to return. So if I'm, if I'm buried or uh, whatever happens with me afterwards, I don't know whether in moments of my death or in centuries after my death, whether Jesus is going to return. But what the Bible suggests, what it introduces to us, is that our future destiny, by believing and trusting in Him, is a physical, bodily resurrection and a reconstitution of Paul Howell and whoever else in this room believes in Him. Because the physicality of my being, the physicality of who we are, is what God has made us for. So, what does that say? It says that if our idea of spirituality, if our idea of heaven is somehow being released from this physicality, then we've got it wrong. You know, I am so thankful that heaven is not going to be sitting in some disembodied state, floating around in some spiritual cloud, entering into the ether of the whole of being, all mixed up with everybody else's being, playing a harp or however else, weird descriptions are rolled out for what heaven it is. The reality is, I'm going to be risen from the dead. I'm going to be uh, given a reconstituted body. I am going to be me again without the problems. <laughs> because that, has got, that is what God has made us for. You know, that is why we actually desperately want to hold on to life in some way. Actually... If our bodies weren't deteriorating, if we were never faced with the threat of imminent death, 
if we were not looking around at pain and suffering and hardship and difficulty in this world, if we were satisfied in the bodies that we were in, in so many different ways that we live unsatisfied, if we were living in satisfied bodies, we would be satisfied people. We would be the fulfillment of what it is to be a human being because that's how God has made us. And I want to suggest that from two points of view. Firstly, because that is the definition of how Jesus comes into the world. Now, if you think about it, if God wanted to save us in another way, Jesus would have come into this world in some other spiritual form that connected with us in some way that said the future is going to be something else. But he doesn't. He comes in physical form to say it's all about this. It's about this, the real you. You are made for a body. You're actually made for a body that works. You're actually made for a body that is reconciled and satisfied and happy and fulfilled. That's who you are. So he defines what it is truly to be a human being. So now we've got two stepping stones here. We've got the idea of what heaven is going to be We've got the idea of what true humanity is designed to be. Now, here's the question. Here's the key question. How might I know that I can be part of that? Because that's the other thing that we define for ourselves. The other thing that we define is how we get to heaven. In so many ways, we define what heaven is, and then we define how we get there. But the idea of God breaking in and saying, right, stop, stop defining, I'm going to come and tell you what it is. It's revelation, God revealing himself to us and saying, look, I know that you're really kind of blowing your brains out, you're kind of stretching those intellectual muscles beyond belief to try to work out what heaven and personhood is. Stop worrying about it, this is what it is. It's, it's, It's about this. And then he says, I'll also tell you how you might be part of it. How might I enter into that eternal relationship? Look at verse 53. Jesus says this. In fact, this is one of the crisis moments in Jesus' ministry, as far as many other people are concerned. He's absolutely clear on what's going on. But this is a crisis moment. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Okay, so there's the definition. There's the definition. I will raise up on the last day those who've eaten my body and drunk my blood. We'll come back to that. Just hold on, and we'll come back to it. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And that caused such a stink for all sorts of people who'd been following Jesus for ages. They'd been what Jesus even described as, well, John describes as, disciples. They've been disciples of Jesus. And when Jesus said that to them, they flipped said, this is just too hard. I can't go along with this. This sounds 
nasty. <laughs> it sounds gross. Do you think Jesus meant that? Do you think Jesus really meant that his body was going to be physically carved up and his blood poured out into jugs for us to drink? Or does he mean something much richer and much deeper? Clearly, it must be something else, mustn't it? It just must be something else. At least because if Jesus was, I don't know, five foot nine, 80 kilos, there's only so much of him physically to go round, isn't there? If it meant he was going to be eaten and drunk. It cannot be that. It must be something else. And it's this. If I understand that his life is the only life of hope, if I understand that by eating and drinking on him, we are not talking about 1st century or 21st century cannibalism, we are talking about finding him as the sustaining factor of my spiritual identity. What do I feed on spiritually? What do I eat spiritually? What do I drink spiritually? Where do I draw my sustenance? And Jesus says, from me. I am the one who is so loving towards you that I have come into this world I have left the glory of heaven. I have broken into this world and I present myself to you as your spiritual food. All of my life, all of my death, all of my resurrection, all of my ascension feed on me. You know, there is a sense in which Jesus said, I want, you to, I want you to live out this regularly as the church. And we do that. We remind ourselves that Jesus is our sustaining factor. His body and his blood are our sustaining factor. We do it regularly every month in this church on a Tuesday night, first Tuesday in the month, we eat the bread and drink the wine to remind ourselves that Jesus is our sustaining being. What do you eat to survive the day? You count your calories? Do you do all of that? Or do you just get into the great stuff? However you do it. We eat because our bodies need food, don't we? We drink because if we don't drink, we will be dehydrated and we will die. If we don't eat, we will become emaciated and we will die. We need both of those things. We need, the, we need food and we need drink to remain physically living. And Jesus is quite simply saying this. To be spiritually alive, you need me. It, it's as simple as that. If, if those who had been so offended by the idea that Jesus was demanding cannibalism... I'd just taken a moment, just stopped 
they might have realized he must mean something more. And Jesus becomes our sustainer. Some of the disciples got it. He said to them in verse 67, do you want to leave too? Do you? Are you you off? He says to the twelve. Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where can we go? Where is there any hope outside of you is effectively what he's saying. You have the words of, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's just a, it's just a great statement. I don't think, he didn't understand, I'm sure, the whole dimensions of what that meant. There was way more for him to learn of what that meant, but he knew who Jesus was. He knew that he was the one who was bringing hope. Now, here's the thing. How might I partake in that? Well, by deciding to eat. Deciding to drink. Deciding that Jesus is going to be the focus of my spiritual satisfaction and nourishment. In other words, Jesus is is making an invitation. You want spiritual nourishment? Come and feed on me. And yet, paradoxically, he also says this in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled me. (laughs) It's just a paradox, isn't it? He says to this, he says, just come and feed on me. Just come on, feed on me. And you'll gain eternal life. And then he also says, but you can't come to me unless the Father has given given you to me. Paradox. Hold them both together. Here's the thing. Forget about the Christian faith just for a moment. Do we have a free will? And everybody says, yeah, I've got a free will. Well, I just want to just take you into a different kind of world, a world of academia and a world of, you know, philosophical thinking. The battle rages. The battle absolutely rages in that world as to whether we've got a free will or not. Just for a moment, just realize that that's going on. There's a whole load of people who are saying, You've got, we have no chance we've got a free will. Let me just make it really simple to try to understand why. They say they would make this claim, the decisions that you make are absolutely already decided by the context in which you live, by your upbringing, by all of the things that have shaped you throughout your life. You are bound to make that decision. You are always going to make that decision because that's the life you've lived. And then you just say, oh yeah, okay, right. I see where they're coming from. I see where they're coming from. Maybe it's not quite so straightforward. Do you know the amazing thing here? Jesus pulls the rug out of both of those. He pulls the rug out from under the feet of both of those. If you think that you haven't got the responsibility to come and to feed on me, then you're not listening to what I'm saying by saying, come and feed on me. And if you think that you can do it by your own strength, you're not realizing that it demands for my Father to intervene. And in that moment in time, Jesus introduces to us a logic which is superior to all of ours. And he says, my logic is greater than any logic that you can ever bring. I demand that no matter which perspective you come from, you're going to be rocked. You're going to be rocked if you think that I've got absolute freedom all the time, and you're going to be rocked if you think that I've got no freedom at all. Both of those hold together. 
in the message of Jesus. So here's the thing. Jesus has now introduced to us the idea of what heaven is, the idea of what human fulfillment really is, and the idea of what it really means to be able to access it. The simple question is quite realistically this, isn't it? Where do each one of us stand in that spectrum? Where do we stand in the relationship of those, two, those three things? Am I still defining what heaven is? Am I listening to the revelation of God come into the world? And am I feeding on Jesus as my spiritual hope? That's the question that we need to come to terms with. That's the demand that the ascension of Jesus makes upon us.